Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellish Podcast, a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and any other tangent that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, a geek, a casual observer, or someone just floating through this channel, you're sure to waste a few minutes listening to what I have to say, and I hope you find it interesting. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. If you can't find me on a platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com, and I'll get that taken care of. Also, generally, the live stream, the recording of these episodes, but today's episode is going to be recorded ahead of time. Um, you can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's also a place to pick up these links, episode details, and some one-off tasting notes. I just finished a conversation with Ari and Doug from Mammoth Distilling, and it was super fun and super um, informative. Uh, I can already tell that there's going to be a second one of these uh, in the very, very near future. I'm going to do everything I can to try to get up and visit them and what they're doing. Um, if you if you have any interest in how whiskey is made and um, sort of the the grain to glass approach. This this is even beyond grain to glass. This is soil to glass. You know, there's there's a degree of preparation. There's a degree of farming. There's a degree of distilling, and then there's a degree of selling. And um, all of it is exactly the reason why I started doing this. Why I started creating a podcast like this is to be able to have conversations with people who are doing interesting things within the whiskey marketplace. This afternoon, I have with me Doug and Ari from Mammoth Distilling. Uh, thank you guys for being here. If you want to take a couple seconds, a minute or whatever, um, talk about who you are, what Mammoth is, and um, you know, kind of an ethos and vision behind it. Each Whoever wants to respond, go ahead. Have at it, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so my name's uh, Doug Burke. I'm the Mammoth Agronomist as well as a distiller. Um, so I guess my background with it is I come from a, a farm that I'm running with my wife. Um, so before distilling, you know, I was farming and um, I ended up in the off season, started part time at the distillery uh, at Mammoth and um, kind of taught from the ground up on it. So um, I then after a little while of understanding the distilling world, I I kind of started venturing into the grain side of it, and uh, we had a great opportunity with uh, Rose and Rye, um, thanks to Ari here, as well as Chad. Um, and so that kind of kick-started the whole uh, the grain uh, route for me. So I started doing a lot more research on on grains because my, my background's in vegetables. So it's it's been also a little bit of a learning curve for me, but I've enjoyed it along the way. And um, Mammoth has been such a big supporter in that journey and really is coming to be a, uh, a very grain forward company. And it's really exciting to be a part of it. So um, that's a little bit about me, Ari. Yeah. So my name is Ari Sussman. I'm a whiskey maker at Mammoth Distilling. Um, that's a pretty broad term. And over the past eight years that I've worked with Mammoth, I've worn several hats. I've been uh, a consultant. I've been a full-time distiller. I've been a whiskey blender. I've been a product developer and a project developer. And uh, really Mammoth, uh, just a bit about my background. Um, I thought I wanted to be a winemaker. So I moved to France and learned all about winemaking. I came back to the United States and uh, loved making wine. But while I was in France, I was also making brandy. And when I learned that Michigan State University, and I should mention that Doug and I are both in Michigan, um, when I learned that Michigan State University in East Lansing was creating the first uh, distilling program at any research university in the country, like a real distilling program with students doing research, um, I jumped at the opportunity not to join the program, but to work there. Uh, I've always been a little bit more entrepreneurial than academic. And so my goal was to work with the students that were doing research, work with the companies that would come into Michigan State's distillery for product and process development, and uh, turned out to be a really great thing. Uh, the late, great Dr. Chris Berglund, we, we lost him a, a few years ago, he passed away. Uh, he founded, like I said, the first distilling program in the country, which became a real epicenter for uh, distilling knowledge, especially innovative distilling knowledge uh, in the United States. Um, he was very uh, 
Chris was from Sweden. He was from like Northern Sweden. And he was always very uh, insistent that Michigan, uh, because of Michigan's uniquely diverse agriculture, Michigan has a, more growth zones than, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee put together, basically. Um, and because of the various soil types, because of soil deposited during the, the glaciers receding 13,000 years ago, Michigan is just blessed with a lot of agricultural diversity. And he was shocked. Dr. Berglund was shocked that uh, while the brewers were doing great and the winemakers were doing great, nobody was really doing distilling. And in fact, at the time, very few people in the country in general were doing distilling. And uh, so Dr. Berglund planted, uh, at least in, in, in my head, no pun intended, the idea that in addition to the wonderful spirits being made in Tennessee and Kentucky and primarily in, in the south of the United States, from the middle to the south of the United States, that there was a distinct style and unique characteristics and aromas and spirits to be made in the north and that there's just like a lot of runway if for for creative people that understand agriculture and understand the science of distilling the north offers so many possibilities to explore flavor and aroma and all of that um so i i met the owners uh chad and tracy of Mammoth Distilling while I was working at Michigan State. They were one of the companies that came in to have their products developed. And we just remained in touch over the years. And, and ultimately, when it was time for them to set up their own distiller and start making products, they brought me on as distiller. Um, and gradually over time, I helped train other distillers who have in turn trained other distillers. Um, but uh, Doug alluded a little bit to, to Rosenrye, which is just this phenomenal story that we stumbled upon that is in our backyard. We'll, we'll get into it in a little more depth in a minute, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a whiskey maker. I actually, uh, I, I help develop products for several distilleries. Um, Mammoth, however, is very unique in that it's championing the flavors and aromas of the North and that's something that we just have not seen in the United States. And in order to do that, we need to learn more about grain varietals. I mentioned I have a background uh, as a winemaker and winemakers know that varietals are very important to developing styles of wine. Um, but of course, whiskey has been so homogenized and consolidated in the past 80 years since the end of prohibition that all those kind of varietal styles, regional styles, they've all kind of fallen by the wayside and, and Mammoth is really one of the companies in the United States that's looking to, to hold the mantle and stake a claim to agriculture and climate and, and land being a critical component of making whiskey. Mm -hmm. It's uh, so it's, it's, that's the thing that sort of hooks me on this entire story is, uh, I don't know, six months ago, three, four, five months ago, there's another podcast called distillers talk. It's got, um, Alan Bishop out of French lick. Um, he was doing a great Christy as well. Jeez. Yeah. Christy. Christy so yeah, wonderful. people who don't know the podcast, they know who Alan Bishop is because of spirits, French lick people who know the podcast also know Christy, but they have a fantastic episode with a guy named Joseph Lofthouse who talks about land race gardening. And through the course of that, he mentioned specifically that there's no reason why every craft distiller should not have their own grain, right? Um, maybe you've got rosin rye, but you've got uh, a, a lineage of rosin rye that you kind of grow because it fits your climate, it fits your terroir, it fits your growing season, it fits whatever. Um, and that's what I really like about this. But rosin rye has its own problems. And so we can kind of just dive right into to what rosin rye is specifically and where it was historically versus where it is now. And I know one of the problems with Rosenride being really, really popular. And so I found this article. It said that you came across it because you were looking at a, what, a 1934 Christmas issue of Vanity Fair. Like, who does things like that besides people like maybe like you and Todd Leopold are looking at old documents to try to find stuff? Super interesting. But Rosen has a problem with promiscuity and most of the people who listen to this have no idea what that means. So either one of you guys care to explain what that means for the rye, for what happens to it over time and does it impact whiskey flavor? Um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll take this one. Um, so rye is kind of a unique uh, grain in that it is a cross pollinating uh, grain. Um, 
So you have like wheat, which is self-pollinating, and that's that's really easily you, you can easily control the genetics of it. But with rye and its cross-pollination, any anytime it's planted, you know, close to another variety of rye, they're going to cross-pollinate each other, and the genetics from that is going to be different and skewed. So especially with like this rose and rye doing it on South Manitou, it's away from all other types of rye. The only rye that has been grown on the island is rose and rye. So, you know, it's it's quite an adventure to be able to, to keep those genetics uh, pure. But, you know, in the end, I think it's really going to be rewarding. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, rye is such a hardy crop too. I think we're really lucky that we're growing rye on South Manitou Island instead of corn. Uh, that would be a complete nightmare. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I As mean, opposed to growing rye, is that less of a nightmare? Yeah. Yeah. Rye, rye, rye is easy, man. Rye, rye is one of the easier crops to grow. It can handle like poor soils, sandy soils, and, um, it's extremely winter hardy. Um, I did a little, uh, test plot, uh, at my house and, uh, with a Hazlitt variety rye, uh, as well with a Rosen, um, just to see how they overwintered with each other and kind of the comparison. And this Rosen is coming up so green and thick and healthy. And, you know, the Hazlitt rye, the stuff that's been, you know, cross-pollinated, you know, multiple, multiple times is, it's short, it's, it's going to work, but it's definitely not as hardy as this Rosen rye, so very exciting so, so you mentioned the the south manitou island um how, maybe it helps to explain um how rye pollinates is it wind is it insect is it you know like what happens there and then the the need for the island itself specifically around rosen yeah i mean it, it's it's almost entirely wind pollinated um so uh, it's also, we have westerly winds, so the, the winds are always going to be going towards the mainland away from the island, so it's really a secure area. Um, but yeah, rye, rye is almost entirely wind-pollinated. Um, okay. I don't know. That, that makes sense now, because I was looking at it, and I was like, you know, um, in, in my experience in ag, some folks will use buffer zones, growing zones, whatever, to try to capture that, and so you use the first 20, 30, 40, 50 feet of a field to try to kind of pick that up. But, um, on the Island, you're five ish miles from the mainland, but that's on the East side. And so now your Westerly wind is helping prevent anything from happening. Cause I, I, I don't know specifically about rye cause I'm in Kentucky, you know, we don't grow rye here because it doesn't grow well here. Like it's not a, it's not a good crop for the state of Kentucky, but like, what is the distance that the pollination can have uh, through the wind? But if you're looking at from the West, you've got that beat by a long shot at that point. Uh, right. Cause the pollen can't come over from Wisconsin, right? right? That's too far. That's what's on the, <laughs> if it does, we have all kinds of other problems happening at that point. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I'll just speak briefly about, but why Mammoth selected South Manitou Island on which to grow Rose and Ryan, really how we started growing Rose and Ryan in the first place. And you mentioned the advertisement from Vanity Fair, and, and that was that was like the looking glass. That's that was the rabbit hole right there. Um, I again as as a as a winemaker, I'd always understood that varietals have different characteristics, even within the same you know, species. And uh, I, I'd always been surprised that, that folks weren't paying attention to it. Obviously, in the past couple of years, we've seen bloody butcher corn and blue Hopi corn whiskeys. And that's clearly uh, uh, a broadside in, in that direction. Um, but what we learned in, from the 1934 advertisement was that not only was the largest company in the United States taking out a full page page, uh, full page advertisement in one of the largest publications, um, right at the Christmas issue, right at the tail end of Prohibition, right? The first Christmas after Prohibition, they took out this full page article. And the article specifically says that the most flavorful kernel of grain which Mother Earth produces is Rosen rye grown in Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, it, I, you, you don't hear in contemporary whiskey marketing any mention of Northern states at all. And you also don't hear any mention of varietals. And again, this comes back to the commodity 
nature of large scale whiskey production. They're, they just don't, they're not at the scale with which they can currently work with varietals. But back in the day, 90 years ago, they, they were, they absolutely were. Um, and it was easy for the large scale distillers to focus on rose and rye because it was so abundant at the time. It was almost ubiquitous as far as rye goes. And the reason for that is because 20 years before that advertisement came out, there was a Russian exile, a student who had been uh, exiled from Russia by the czar in 1906. And by 1908, he had found his way of all places to East Lansing, Michigan, the same school at which Dr. Chris Berglund founded the distilling program a century later. Uh, but this young Russian student found himself in the office of the professor, the first professor of plant breeding in the United States, a guy named Joseph Sprague. Uh, who was also a young guy. He was from Montana. So he made his way to Michigan. So these two guys, this guy from Montana and this guy from Russia, are sitting in uh, East Lansing, Michigan, trying to figure out, uh, in, I should say at the time in 1910, Michigan was the largest producer of rye in the country. Um, they were also, uh, this, this Russian student, his name was Joseph Rosen. If that name sounds familiar, it's because uh, Dr. Sprague says to this Russian, he goes, I hear there's a lot of great rye in Russia and our climate and soil types are very similar to Russia in Michigan. That's obviously not the case in Kentucky where rye does not grow particularly well. So Dr. Sprague asked Rosen to bring or have his father ship some rye to Michigan, um, which Rosen's father did. Nobody specified what the rye was that was shipped, uh, which is why it was given the name Rosen. They could have named it Sprague. They could have named it anything, but they named it after the student who got his father to ship seeds over. Um, and it turned out that at Michigan State University's test plots, Rosen far outperformed common rye. It wasn't even close. And uh, it became quite popular. And within a couple of years, there were uh, hundreds of thousands of acres of Rosen rye being planted around Michigan. Uh, at this point, it had not yet been exported to other states. It was all contained in Michigan. And uh, uh, folks started loving it. Then it started exporting to primarily other whiskey producing regions, including Kentucky and Pennsylvania. Um, but we started seeing this cross-pollination issue. We started seeing a degradation in the qualities that made rose and rye appealing to distillers in particular in the first place. It had to do with yield, color, uh, organoleptic characteristics, the way it tasted, the way it smelled. And so in 1917, uh, Dr. Sprague and some other professors at Michigan State decided that what they needed to do in order to achieve proper isolation distance uh, was to find an outpost somewhere far away from any other field where they could keep all of, where they could essentially keep a pure Rosenreich uh, seed stock. And there was a massive survey done um, of, of, of you know, far and wide, and they found that the ideal conditions for growing this Rosenreich were in fact an island off of the off of Sleeping Bear Dunes in northwestern Michigan, and there uh, there were a handful of farmers who later became known as the Rye Kings because the rye that they grew throughout the twenties continuously won best rye in North America, you know, United States and Canada um, at what they called the, the Chicago Grain Fair, which was put on by the Commodities Exchange in Chicago, and it was like any other uh, people farmers from all over North America submitted seeds, and these Rye Kings from uh, from Manitou continually won it year over year after year. So it was pretty remarkable. Um, and uh, yeah, late, later on, Rosen Rye throughout the 20s, 30s, and 40s becomes ubiquitous in American whiskey. Um, so not only Shenley, which was the advertisement that you mentioned from 1934, but Seagram's, Michter's, uh, many other brands called out Michigan Rosen Rye by name as the most flavorful. Uh, as the best flavor and grain in American whiskey. Um, uh, later on, when the Hutzlers and the Becks and the other farmers on South Manitou Island um, passed on, their children did not want to stay on the island farming rye. And what you saw was uh, rose and rye disappearing at that point because what existed cross-pollinated and we haven't been able to grow. Nobody's really commercially sold rose and rye for about half a century until quite recently. Um, particularly in, in Pennsylvania. Um, what's interesting for us at Mammoth is that Rosen Rye 
is uh, notable because of its uh, superior flavor, uh, which is why anyone should grow rose and rye. If you live in an area that can grow rose and rye, you should grow types of rye and identify the right, you know, identify the flavors and, and how you can make things that are delicious and unique. What's interesting for us is that the story of rose and rye, which was popular all over the place, is really centered in East Lansing, where Mammoth products were originally um, formulated, and on South Manitou Island, which, as the bird flies, is not very far from where Doug Burke is sitting right now. It takes a while to drive here because you've got to drive around several bodies of water, but as the bird flies, very close by. So it's like a, a native uh, Michigan whiskey story, northern Michigan whiskey story. And so from the, the, the gist that I get here is that, you know, the Michters of the world want to recreate what Pennsylvania rye was. You got dad's hat, you got Michters, you got a host of people that are talking about what Pennsylvania rye was. But in reality, Pennsylvania rye is really born in Michigan because of Rosen specifically, right? That when it was in its heyday in the 30s and the 40s, it was picking up sourcing of, of, of rye from those locations. Is that a correct statement or did I go too far? I would push back a little bit on that. And I would say that the history of whiskey and rye whiskey in Pennsylvania goes back about at least 250 years. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. And anyone who's interested in whiskey and where the whiskey world is today should look at what has happened in Pennsylvania for two and a half centuries, because Pennsylvania is amazing. They've always made great whiskey right. and they've always been strong proponents of, of rye um, in in. Uh, Rose and Rye only came to Pennsylvania in 1919. That's when the first uh, that's when the first legally um, exported certified Rose and Rye left uh, Michigan for Pennsylvania. But we have evidence that it was bootlegged as grain uh, right. out to New York and Pennsylvania beforehand. We have copies. Okay. And then, to that effect. so so Rosen was you said ubiquitous to rye for a long time, and then it sort of died off because people stopped farming. So how do you revive a dead grain? Like you said, it effectively died off, but like you, you have it now. So how, how do we get here? You did bring up dad's hat real quick. And I, and I will say Herman Mihalich at dad's hat was, I believe he, he knew about Rose and I before anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew Herman because he had also come to Michigan State University to get his, uh, some of his products uh, developed. And, and he's a great guy and his products mm -hmm. are phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so uh, what was the question? Sorry. <laughs> how, do, how do you resurrect what is effectively a dead rye at that point? Patience and <laughs> smarter than you are, like Doug and uh, several amazing people at Michigan State. Nobody's grown this rye commercially for a very long time. So we reached out to the seed bank. So the USDA keeps a seed bank. It's in the side of a mountain in the west. And we were able to obtain a small handful, palmful of seed, uh, which we grew season after season in laboratory greenhouses at Michigan State University. Similar, you know, basically very close to where the original rye, Rosen rye was, was developed uh, over a hundred years before. And once we had enough grain from enough growth cycles in these greenhouses, we struck a deal um, with the National Park Service, which has been operating South Manitou Island since 1972. And they understood the what we were trying to do and the story that we were trying to tell and why it was important that the National Park Service in South Manitou Island and really the original road in my field won all these in the 1920s. It only made sense or it made sense to, to return it there. And uh, so it's taken several years to even just get seed in the ground on the island. And that's where we are now. We're growing out the seed stock on the island. And at this point, we are not yet making whiskey. We're just continually growing the seed stock. Okay. So you get the seed stock. Then then what's the next step here, I guess? Because, um, you know, Doug here is a vegetable farmer and, and you're a whiskey maker that has access to some land. Like, how do you get Rosen in the ground in a quantity that allows you to distill it? Doug, could you talk a little bit about what it what we're doing on Manitou and what's involved with <laughs> farming? Yeah, on yeah right. um, so so we have uh, 15 acres out there, um, and we started with 230 grams in uh, 2020, uh, then got up to a quarter of an acre after saving that seed replanting. Uh, this next year, we'll be doing 10 acres, um, as well as we got our first. 
uh, Rosen with uh, Empire Malting, a company on the mainland. Um, so I, I guess I should mention that you can grow uh, like a Rosen rye, cert, like certified Rosen rye on the mainland for two years before you have to replenish that seed stock. So we're going to be continuously planting stuff on South Manitou Island and we get the the breeder seed from Michigan State. So um, that goes from Michigan State to us on the island and then from the island to the mainland to, to really be grown at a, a quantity that we can distill. So um, like Ari said, it takes patience. Uh, you know, we have to get a tractor, you know, on a landing craft, you know, out in the middle of Lake Michigan. It's, it's, it's been a, a crazy journey, but, you know, if you, if you really go for something and really want it, you can make it happen. And, um, you know, I think everyone has learned so much from this project and, and it's, it's really inspiring for me to see so many people take this on and, and, uh, and we've been having a good time doing it too. You know, mm -hmm. you know we get to go out to the Island for a week, do some camping and, uh, no service on the cell phone. So, it's just, it's really just you, the seed and the land. And uh, you know, even more, there, there's also no bathrooms and no gas station <laughs> and no store with which to get food. Anything that we do on the island, we take out there with us. We take tents. Um, it, it, it's a deserted island at this point. It's a national park with some trails on it. Um, and uh, yeah, so farming there takes a, a lot of planning. It takes a landing craft like the ones that stormed Normandy and you have to you know, drive a tractor onto a landing craft, take it across choppy waters in Lake Michigan. Um, we actually take it across a part of Lake Michigan that's called the Manitou Passage, which is uh, famous because it's some of the greatest concentration of shipwrecks in the country. Yeah. Um, so as we're taking a landing craft with a tractor on top of it, we, we're literally passing over dozens and dozens of shipwrecks. So you you basically just describe that you guys are literally doing exactly what pioneers did at the onset of this country, right? Um, because you have to bring everything with you that you want to be able to plant and be able to use to plant, right? So if you're forging your way west, you have to bring everything with you. You, you don't know what you're going to need. Um, a cedar, a disc. Right, all these right. I mean, we're, we're doing it technologically a little bit faster, but like this is the story of the birth of whiskey in the United States as it is. Right. But you're effectively recreating it because you're having to go to this location, um, to plant your seed stock. And you said, you've got a couple of years of growth that anyone on the mainland could use for their certified seed before it starts to drop off uh, in quality. Um, so how, how much, how many acres, I guess, how many acres of production rye can you get out of 10 acres of seed stock? Or do you know yet? So from production, right, the, the purpose of the seed stock is to then be replanted on the island, which is a process we, we, we've begun in uh, Empire Malting, which is owned by a wonderful person named Allison Babb. She's an incredibly talented farmer and welder and maltster and human being. Um, it also happens that we're very particular about where on the mainland we grow. And if you look on the map where Empire is, it's up against the shore. And it also has those same westerly winds which means that um, of all the farms that we looked at to partner, not only because Allison's uniquely qualified to, to grow these sorts of grains, but because of its physical location, less of a threat of cross-pollination when you're all the way up against the west side of the state with nothing but uh, you know, the wind hitting you from the water. So it's, it is important, even on the mainland, where we choose to grow Rosen. Okay. Are there any unique considerations for Rosen itself specifically in how it's grown um, agronomically, whatever? I mean, you, you've got experience, Doug, in being an agronomist. Do you have a, do you hand it to a farmer that you're partnering with and say, hey, go grow this? Or is there more of a handholding event that happens here? No, I, you know, I think Rosen is this is the first time that we're really amping up production on it. Um, and so you know, so far yields have been higher than normal uh, for your normal rye. Um, I do think it might be a challenge when it comes to harvest uh, time. You know, it's a really tall 
uh, rye, it can get up to like seven feet high, um, which is is definitely a, a rare height for rye, you know. Um, so, you know, running through that through a combine is is going to be an interesting process. Um, and so I don't really think anyone has a full grasp on the potential of rosen rye. Um, but so far, so good. You know, I, I have a really great confidence in it just based on, you know, it's from northern Michigan. It's a native. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fine, you know. So if there's anywhere to plant rosen, it's here, you know. Um, so, you know, looking down the line, we'll, we'll see, you know, how the, the yields look, but MFU has been able to get, you know, 45, uh, bushels to the acre and, um, and Allison at Empire Malting is also, uh, you know, thinking high yields too, and it, it looks really good this spring. So, um, so yeah, we're, you we're know. doubly fortunate really that we're getting high yields per acre relative to common rye, and we're also getting, um, some people think this is a positive. Some people think this is a negative. Uh, really low starch content relative, certainly relative to corn, but even relative to other rye, um, which is important because that's where the flavor is. Oftentimes having a low starch content, having a low conversion to alcohol means there's a lot of compounds left over in the grain, which can provide flavor. And that's that's what we're going for. Yeah, it's awesome that we can get 45 currently acres uh, or bushels per acre that's that's actually really good that's that's above what we had projected but it's keeping um keeping this low relatively low starch content is a, is a big part of what we're trying to do here as well mm-hmm. so have you have you have you been able to experiment with any rosin yet as far as the distilling <laughs> very small amounts mm-hmm. very small amounts and I know I've, you know, I've obviously never distilled. Uh, it's, it's not a thing that I've uh, had an experience with, but everyone that I've ever heard talk about distilling, not necessarily even distilling, fermenting rye is um, some of the nuance to it. It, it. In a very, at a very small scale, is this behaving similarly to worse than, because there's the foaming problem where it all, you know, kind of just, it, it, you have to have a unique consideration. If you've never made rye before and all you've ever made is corn whiskey, it's a different environment altogether. Um, is this in the same vein or is this low starch content helping that? No, it's not helping. Not helping. Um, using anti-foams, rye in general, and mammoth, because mammoth makes primarily, mammoth makes northern spirits. We're not right. looking to recreate things made elsewhere. We're looking to I, to explore the world of northern spirits. Um it's uh, we we use a lot of rye. We use more rye than most distilleries. Primarily, we make products from rye. Primarily, rye whiskey, but our vodka also incorporates rye. Um, so we're we're very rye heavy. And you had mentioned earlier that Doug had mentioned that it's a cold, hardy plant. It grows in adverse conditions, poor soil. This is almost like us in the north. Like we kind of <laughs> identify with rye. Um, you're not surviving in northern Michigan unless you're a cold, hardy person that can thrive in adverse conditions. And so we we all, we admire the personality of the rye, and I think we see a little bit our we see a little bit of ourselves in this rye. Uh, corn can grow in many places, right? Rye is very specific, and and um, and corn cannot grow in places where much of the rye grows. Mm-hmm. Tell you that, right? Um, so we do identify with the rye and that's been a pretty interesting uh, who, who thought you would identify from a personality point of view with a grain, but here we are. Oh yeah. I, I totally agree with that. Ari. I, I see, you know, rye is something you plant in the fall and it has to, you know, over winter and just freezing cold temps, mm-hmm. just like we do, you know, we go inside and we, we go dormant and then the spring hits and then we, you know, grow and can't wait to get outside and enjoy the sunshine. So yeah. Yeah. Rye is, Rye is very much us, I guess. So I don't know if you, if you've thought about this, maybe you have, maybe you've been asked this before. I don't know, but if you kind of rewind back to before you began a a project of Rose and Rye here, um, have you ever looked at like, the audacity to do this, right? Because you're starting with, 
you have to convince someone to give you reserved seed stock, right? Then you have to care for it at such a high degree to be able to create more and more seed stock to be able to kind of get it out there. Like you're at such a long process in much of the whiskey game. It's a, it's a swap game. It's a, how quick can I get something out and then sell it again? It, it always intrigues me to see people that have these like really extensive or grand ideas of what they should do that to, to start with such, to have such an audacious goal to like, did you know how big of an undertaking this was going to be at the onset? Or do you like look back at it and say, if I had known this, what I know now, I might have been discouraged from doing it. Yeah. Um, I think at the very beginning, uh, when I heard about this idea, I was like, you guys are crazy, <laughs> you know, and, and through this process, I think I've gained more confidence in the fact that we can actually do it. Um, but in the very beginning, yeah, that was quite a shock. And especially to, you know, to even think about bringing back the harvest, you know, like how the hell are you going to, transport thousands of pounds you know from an island and it was questions that weren't answered mm -hmm. and you know we're still figuring out the logistics behind it but you know at this point we've come so far and i i don't see us slowing down with it one bit i think everyone's so excited and you know I, rye can't grow quick enough for us i guess you know we're we have to wait it out and let it let it do its thing but um, yeah, too great an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. I think you're, right. I think you're spot on. This is all ramping up, John. It is significantly more difficult than any one of us would have known. For instance, after our last uh, trip out to the island, Doug and I both had to go to the hospital with pretty <laughs> intense cases of poison ivy. Um, yeah. I don't know about you, Doug, but my arms are still a little bit scarred from that poison ivy, it never had mm -hmm. it so bad in my entire life. I was out of commission for a week. Um, every mm -hmm. aspect of this has been more hard than we had anticipated. But as a company, Mammoth's intention is not to, to flip as a company and we're not looking for easy outs. That's just not who we are in the North at all. That's not where we come from. Where we come from is, uh, you know, our, our head distiller, Colin, who's somewhere behind Doug is a fifth generation farmer, sixth generation farmer uh, in, in northwestern Michigan. In fact, his great grandparents uh, manned the lighthouse on South Manitou Island to keep those as many of those shipwrecks from happening as possible. Um, we do hard things. We are very scrappy. We mm -hmm. figure stuff out. Um, so in a sense, this has been so much more difficult than we could have imagined. But equally so, it's shown us what we're made of as a company, as individuals, as, as colleagues and as friends. Uh, we work together and we work after hours and our families sacrifice for us to be able to do this. But here's the thing. If you hear as a, you know, as a whiskey company about a grain that tastes better than other grains, how far are you going to go to taste it? How far are you going to go to share that with your customers? And uh, Mammoth's going to go all the way. And I mean, I'll go back to this again. You're effectively telling the story of, of a farmer, period, right? So this is exactly what farmers do is they don't know what's going to come at them in the next growing season, in the next five growing seasons. They don't know, um, you know, here in Western Kentucky, uh, three years ago, they just, or in Kentucky specifically, they just re-allowed commercial farming of hemp. And no one had grown that in this state, aside from universities, for 50, 60, 70 years, at least not in a legal uh, avenue. And so you have this, this want of farmers to farm something new. And you mentioned it, Doug, like there's this problem of um, this may grow to seven feet tall. And how does the combine deal with that? And that's the same thing that farmers are interested in solving these problems. There's an uh, frontiersman attitude that exists in, in, in a lot of farmers. And we're, I'm not talking about, you know, your big scale commercial farmers that are interested in growing, um, you know, millions of pounds of commodity grain, but the, the, the ethos of the original farmer, like that's what this, at least this story and in preparation for this interview, I, I read a lot about what you guys uh, do and what you guys are. And 
sometimes it's a marketing spiel. And then sometimes you talk to people and you start to see that they actually do connect with the story that they're telling. They're passionate about it and they actually own it. It's not something somebody wrote up just to, to sell bottles. And that's what's interesting. You guys are, and it's what's always been interesting to me about whiskey is that it is a corollary tale. Um, whiskey in the United States is a corollary tale with agriculture and the United States as well, right? As things get more commodified, then whiskey kind of matched that. We've come into this place, and I think, Doug, you're doing this. Uh, you said you've got a small vegetable operation. People are getting reconnected with agriculture specifically. And so you're seeing smaller farms start to pop up all over the place in the same way that you're seeing people want to reconnect with what varietals and whiskey can exist. And that's why craft is booming as well. Right? And and I, I hate using the term craft because it almost – sometimes is used as a dirty word like oh that's just craft whiskey it's not i think it's the future of whiskey and you know i, I commend you guys for what you're doing um resurrecting a grain uh, that's that's audacious and not in a bad way uh, like that's that's commendable and it's what you want to see happen um this is the first of several so <laughs> the first rosen, of several all right well yeah so rosen is a proof of concept mm-hmm um, the concept is this, and the concept is applicable to any distiller anywhere. Uh, Rosen was so successful in northern Michigan 100 years ago because it was identified as a climate twin. Where it came from was identified as a climate twin. So someone went to an equivalent growing condition elsewhere in the world where they had different genetic diversity, and that genetic diversity was transplanted into a very similar growing environment and it was improved. That's the word that they used over and over again. It was improved through head selection. So only the, the top 5% of heads would be replanted as the seed stock. So that so the, the entire sort of batch is, is, is continuously uh, improving. What, this, this isn't uh, unique to rye or anything else. What distillers, no matter where they are, if they're in Kentucky or anywhere, get on Google, you can find the right apps and you can figure out where the climate twins are elsewhere in the world. Then you can research what are bakers doing there, right? Are the bakers making interesting cornbread in one of your climate twins? Are, the, are there grains that aren't currently used in American whiskey that are growing in a climate zone that would grow perfectly fine, could be transplanted to the United States? Rosen is a toe in the door. It's the first step. But what this could mean is distillers can, can invest a little bit in some research and start bringing in, you mentioned land race, right? Bring in land race, uh, grains from elsewhere. Um, mm -hmm. I'm already aware of folks in the United States working with farmers in Oaxaca on really, really flavorful uh, corn mm -hmm. that should make very, very flavorful bourbon, right? right. In, in, in be able to impart flavors that nobody's had before. Um, 100, 150 years ago, there was a, a government position called plant hunter. Have you ever heard of the plant hunters? Nope. They're, these are the people that made the original seed banks. The most famous of, of all of them, who is a uh, an inspiration, I think, to some distillers, is a, a Russian guy named Vavilov. Vavilov built the first and largest seed bank in the world in St. Petersburg. Ironically, and he, and he built it to to, to fend off any future famine. So there'd always be a seed stock. Mm -hmm. um, ironically, he died of starvation in a gulag because Stalin, he ran afoul of Stalin. Um, and actually Vavilov's uh, assistance at the seed bank also died of starvation during the siege of Lenin, or uh, siege of St. Petersburg, I believe, um, because they refused to eat the seeds that Vavilov had gone to 50, 60 countries to collect. Um, so seed banks, this is where we're going to find really amazing flavors, mm -hmm. but we can also, you know, as, as rye makers, we're, I'm looking towards Estonia, Belarus, Russia, uh, Ukraine, places that have varietals of grain, uh, varietals of rye in particular, that I think, uh, we're, we're pretty certain could transplant very well. And through Michigan State University, we've already begun we're several years into grain varietal trials where we're making whiskeys from different types of grain grown here in Michigan, oftentimes grown the same grain grown in three different climate zones in Michigan um, to identify any, uh, we're identifying both organoleptically and an analytically 
uh, chemical and, and, and aroma differences. So rosin is just the tip of the iceberg here. It's an invitation for distillers to go find their own rosin. Mm -hmm. That's that's what we all hope to hear, right? Like you know, whether there's a, a bourbon boom or not, like I'm still going to be here in 10 years, you know, like looking at this and being interested by this because that's, that's what makes it attractive, you know, is being able to find new and unique ways to make whiskey. Um, I made so many notes that have absolutely nothing to do with this particular interview. Now I've got to go out and find climate twins and um, research banks or the, the, the plant hunter, all, all of these things now because intellectual curiosity just gets the better of me. I, I think uh, this would be a, probably a better time to mention, but we're also working with MSU on some corn varietals. Um, and this is something that's going to start uh, this year, um, looking at uh, cross-pollinating hybrid high-yielding corns with heirlooms. Um, you know, trying to figure out a way to, because heirlooms just in general don't yield as well as, you know, the large uh like number two dent corn or something like that, you know? Um, so being able to uh, pollinate a, a corn that has both the high yielding aspect as well as being able to keep the flavor of the heirloom, mm -hmm. um, that just makes it so much more enticing for everyone, especially farmers to grow heirlooms. You know, there's not a whole lot of farmers out there that are, are wanting to grow heirlooms just based on yield, you know, per square foot based on, their disease resistance, all that. So mm. I think that's really a, a unique thing. And I'm, I'm really excited to see where that goes because, you know, that could change a lot more than just, you know, the type of grain you're using that can actually change like a food system. Yeah. Um, and that's because like, I know I was at the Kentucky bourbon festival this year and uh, went to a session that um, the, the folks at Jeff, the Creed were running and that's how she tests out her, you know, am I going to use a corn or heirloom corn is, and you mentioned it already is by making cornbread out of it, make cornbread to start with. If that comes out something interesting, then maybe we'll give it a shot at distilling if it doesn't come out very interesting. Um, but the, the farmer has to make the decision, okay, do I plant this heirloom that is going to yield far less, but then I'm going to have to charge through the nose for it to be equally profitable against commodity corn. Uh, and so then that becomes a problem for you two as distillers. Now we have to pay three, four times the value to be able to kind of match up with that. That's, that's an interesting concept is, is getting this, this mixture of heirloom and hybrid to try to get, yield right. up on heirloom to where it becomes cost effective for the farmer cost effective for the distiller but maintains the quality um, exactly will cost effective means different things to different people mm -hmm. so we consistently pay four times the going rate for commodity grain to get superior products right uh it's really a matter of where is a company willing to make an investment you're going to make it in the marketing if, if you have a finite amount of money are you going to hire people to tell tall tales or are you going to invest in great ingredients to make great whiskey? Mm -hmm. And for us, that's a no-brainer. Um, we're we're not going to let we're we're going to do we're not going to let quality slip. We're going to at least at very <laughs> we're going to try not to let quality slip. Right. At very least, we're going to start with the best inputs available, grown by farmers that either it's us in house or it's farmers that share values with us. Um, Doug does a great job. He's our main interface with the agricultural community, farmers across Michigan. Um, so yeah, it, like this is an expensive way to make whiskey. Like four paying four X for an input changes the bottom line. It just does. Right. And it means you can't do other things that you might want to do. So you're making sacrifices, but you're making, you're making the right sacrifice. Right. And I guess when I, when I mean, uh, maybe cost conscious cost, mm -hmm. it, it allows potentially allows for more farmers to enter into the realm. And so there's more of it available, right? Because you, you pay a premium, you know, four times the amount, um, which is commendable. That's what we want. That's what we hope as consumers. We hope that you guys are buying the best thing possible. But at the end of the day, there's X number of farmers that might be farming heirloom grain because they don't potentially 
have someone who is willing to pay four times that in, in the state of Kentucky? Is there somebody that's willing to pay four times? Nope. So then I probably won't farm it and I'll continue with yellow dent number two or whatever it is that I'm going to farm. If there is research that can get yield up, it brings down that, that, that cost for a distiller to want to purchase it. It benefits you in the long run. I mean, you're willing to pay it now, but if you can pay less, that's a benefit to you if, if quality doesn't suffer. Um, but making it more available. And that was one of the things I went back to on the, on the land race is that make more heirloom type varieties available to people to match their location. You know, I'm, I'm in Western Kentucky. Can I find something unique to here? Can I find it at a, at, at a value that helps me still be profitable as a farmer, helps the distiller be profitable as a distiller and um, has a consumer market, right? Cause you, you got to kind of connect all three of those things together to meet some degree of success. And that's, that, that's amazing. That, you know, that's, that's where we want to be. Um, we're creeping in on an hour now. Um, I, I know, Doug, you said you've got a mash going. I, I don't want to keep you away from that. Obviously, yeah, because, I got an answer. Um, more important than anything I'm going to say. Um, so I, I appreciate you being here. I, I, I don't want to cut you off. I mean, you can hang out for as long as you want to, but. No, I, I, I do have to get going. And it's not me. I'm not paying you. We'd love to talk again sometime. Yes, because yeah. we yeah, yeah. just scratched the surface of some of the things that that we're up to. Yeah. Um, we can talk about the styles of whiskey. If you're if you're uh, investing heavily in quality grains, do you want to obscure the flavor of those grains by using heavily active oak? Probably not. So it creates an entirely unique style, which we call northern whiskey, which puts the grain at the center point and then uses wood, almost like a winemaker would use wood in a fruit forward wine. To, to highlight certain characteristics. Th those were the questions that I had already, like I have them down here about asking about the variability of alcohols and, and what you're making by different grains and how they're going into barrels. But I can toss those aside because we're let's, creeping let's, towards the end of it. And part two. yes, yeah. yeah, absolutely a part two. We'll do this again. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to find a way to get to Michigan, whether it be through personal or through work. Uh, if I can tie it into work, they pay for it and that makes it all the better. <laughs> but, you know. Thank you so thank, much for making time and speaking with us. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. So thanks for joining me tonight or today or whenever you happen to catch this. I hope you found this episode entertaining. And if you did, please leave me a review on whatever platform you have that you're consuming this on. Leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media at Twitter or Instagram using EmbellishPod. Give me a follow. You can keep up with what's going on here. Once again, you can email me at uh, embellishpod at gmail.com. My website is www.embellishpod.com. It has all my links, contacts, account details, all of that stuff. I'll be back again next week with another interview. I uh, hope you interested. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this. So, yeah. Uh, I'll be back again next week with another new offering for you. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Uh, so until then, cheers and thanks for hanging out.